Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this Old Testament account, considering the people of Israel. We consider their complaining against you. Lord, we also think of that statement there that when Moses said, oh, that all men would prophesy, that all men would have the Spirit of God. And we recognize that as a new covenant reality, that the Holy Spirit has been given to every true believer. Uh, Lord, this morning now, as we look to your word, we just pray that you would sanctify us by your word. That you would cause your word in us to grow us, to make us more like Christ. Lord, we recognize that your word is pure and that you use it to change us, to conform us to your, to your image. We just pray that you would do so. I pray that you would grant me clarity and that we could understand your word this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the years, in various evangelistic encounters that I've had with people, the following concept or principle has been particularly useful. Uh, this principle is loosely based upon 1 Peter 5.5, 5, which says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In a reduced form of that verse, Uh, This principle comes, and this evangelistic principle is simply this. It's law to the proud, grace to the humble. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. Well, what does this mean? In our evangelism, it's, it's helpful to give the law to those who are proud in their hearts. It's helpful to explain God's law or God's commandments for mankind who think they are good. And by law, I mean the commands found in the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament. To those who believe that they're good enough, though to those who believe that their works somehow have merited them eternal life, it's helpful to explain to them or teach them just a portion of God's law or God's commands. In Romans 7, 7, the Apostle Paul testified of himself. He said, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. The law forced Paul to come to terms with his own sinfulness. And after all, this is one of the purposes of the law. The law is meant to function as sort of a mirror to reveal or expose our own sinfulness to us. And when man, as a natural born sinner, becomes aware of God's righteous standards, when he becomes aware of God's binding expectations that have been placed upon him, while instantly perceiving of his own failure and inability to keep God's standard, he realizes that he is in a precarious position. The law of God condemns him. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 3, the law of God silences the mouth of the sinner. Romans 3.19 states that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and the whole world may become accountable to God. The law closes the sinner's mouth. When confronted with the law of God, man is left without excuse. Sinful man has no ground to defend himself before a holy God as he realizes that he has broken God's law. When he realizes that the holiness and justice of God requires the just prosecution of his rebellion against God, he then is ready to hear the good news. You may be familiar with Galatians 3.24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. The law functions as a guide, as a schoolmaster, pointing us to Christ. 
In other words, the law prepares us to hear the gospel. By law, by pointing out our sin, we are instructed of our great need for a Savior. The law humbles the proud. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. Law to the proud. And I found that in witnessing the people, that most people, that, but most people naturally believe that they're good enough to enter heaven. They believe that they'll, by their own goodness, will enter heaven simply because they're a good person. And I ask, if I were to ask them, well, tell me, why would God let you into heaven? The overwhelming majority response is, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a good person. And they might even add a piece of supporting evidence, something like this. Well, I've never killed anybody, never done anything like that. And obviously, Scripture directly contradicts their own self-evaluation of themselves. Romans 3, after all, says, there is no one righteous not even one. There is no one who understands God. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become useless. And there is no one who does good. So in God's eyes, there's no such thing as a good person. There's no such thing. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 They think they are in a state of good standing with God, but in actuality, Scripture testifies that they actually stand condemned. And at this point in my conversation with them, using God's law is often the best way forward. I might ask them, have you ever lied before? Have you ever lied before? Well, of course I have. I mean, who hasn't done that? Well, Revelation 21.8 says, all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. Do you recognize that? Have you ever looked at a person with lust in your heart? Well, everyone does that, don't they? Everyone does that. Well, in Matthew 5, Jesus said that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has committed adultery in his heart. Have you ever been angry with a friend? Have you ever, have you ever been really angry with a family member? Well, yes, I'm, I'm human, of course. I've done, I've done all these things. Well, in Matthew 5, Jesus also said that the person who is angry with his brother has committed murder in his heart. Therefore, by your own admission, you have sinned against the Holy God. You've committed murder and adultery in God's eyes. You have lied. You have broken His law. And the Bible testifies that what you have earned are the wages for your sin is eternal death. What you have earned for your sin is eternal death. God will certainly punish you for your sins against Him. I often say, tell them Nahum 1.3 at this point, God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. We can trust that He will punish sin because He hates sin and He must punish it. And I recognize this is a little bit of abbreviated here and it little takes a little bit more explanation. But, what the person, but when the person acknowledges their own sinfulness by saying something like this, and when they say, well, if what you're telling me is true and if God is holy and just and I see that I am a sinner, then I guess I would go to hell. I guess I would go to hell if that's who God is. It's at that point when their hearts have been humbled that they are ready for grace. You see, law to the proud, grace to the humble. They're ready to hear the good news. Then at that point, it's helpful to say, well, do you know what God has done for sinners like you and me so that we can be reconciled to Him? He's made a way for, the, for you. Can, let me tell you about what He's done. God loved you so much that He sent His Son, God, the eternal God became a man and took on flesh and lived a perfect life. And at the end of his life, he was killed for sinners like you and me. And if you turn to him, you can be forgiven. Trust in him. 
At that point, we share the gospel with them. And at this point, the, new, the good news becomes exceedingly good news because they understand the bad news. The good news becomes good news only after the sinner understands the bad news. The bad news is that God's a holy God who must punish sin, and we're all sinners. So after you've explained the bad news, the good news becomes incredibly sweet. This is the idea of law to the proud, grace to the humble. This is a simple principle that helps common, bumbling, normal, everyday Christians like myself share the gospel. Jesus, on the other hand, was the master evangelist. He was the master evangelist. Granted, he had an incredible advantage that we don't have. In his omniscience, he was able to discern a man's heart perfectly. And yet Jesus is our supreme example in evangelism. And if we were to study Jesus' evangelistic encounters, I think we'd find a similar paradigm in play, a lot of the proud grace to the humble. For example, consider the account of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler. Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark to just see Jesus' interaction with this young rich man, the rich young ruler. Mark chapter 10 beginning in verse 17. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This man wants eternal life. He wants to be saved. 18, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Here is the law. Do not murder Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not steal. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've I've kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. But at at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who had owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to him, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? See, this man came to Jesus seeking eternal life, and Jesus told him to sell everything, give away his proceeds, and come and follow him. But this man would not do so. Well, why? He loved his wealth too much. He loved his wealth. And he underestimated his great need for salvation, his great need for eternal life. In other words, I think he was just simply too proud. He knew what was best for himself. He loved his wealth too much, and the law revealed this. Jesus' command to him revealed this. And the man went away. No more comments from Jesus. The man just left. Consider also Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman in John 4. In John chapter 4, I invite you to turn there to me, to the fourth gospel. John chapter 4, to just consider quickly this well-known account of Jesus, after calling, her, after calling this woman to come to him for living water, Jesus confronts her with the law and her sinfulness. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. And he said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said to him, I, I have no husband. Here goes Jesus. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Jesus here, being omniscient of all things, draws her sin into full light. He exposes her sin. She states it herself. And in doing so, he prepares her to receive the gospel. 
He confronts her with her sin. Later on in in this account, the Samaritan woman has become a vocal advocate for Christ. We think she's sort of embraced Christ. Look at verse 39 where it reads, From that sinny, many of the Samaritans believed in him because the word of the woman who testified, he told me all things that I have done. She's sort of functioning now as an evangelist, winning people, pointing people to Christ. But by bringing up her sin, her failure to keep God's law, Jesus prepared her heart to receive the gospel. You see, Jesus here is our master evangelist, penetrating to the heart of the manor. This is a form, I think, of law to the proud, grace to the humble. And in John chapter 3, I I think we see Jesus taking a similar approach with Nicodemus. Although Jesus didn't expose Nicodemus' innate sinfulness by employing the law, he did humble Nicodemus by telling him that he needed to be completely born again, to start anew. Recall that Nicodemus was a religious teacher of the highest order in Israel. He was a religious man. He was a religious authority respected by all people. He was a member of the top legislative body there in Israel, the Sanhedrin. And yet Jesus confronted him with his great need to be born of the Spirit of God. Despite all of his religious achievements that he had in his life, being a great teacher, Nicodemus did not possess eternal life. He was not on a trajectory headed for the kingdom of God. We might say Nicodemus at this point was not saved. These are the verses that we considered last week. And obviously, this would have been a crushing blow to any religious man. As maybe a comparison, imagine informing the Pope that he was not a Christian, that he was not headed for heaven. Such a comment would be utterly scandalous, right? And I believe Nicodemus, in a similar way, was reeling from Jesus' words to him. The spiritual pride of his position that had been a pillar in his life was now eroded, if not entirely collapsed. His entire life was revealed to be really a farce. Nicodemus knew about the sinfulness of man. He knew about the holiness and the righteousness of God. But he assumed that his good, his good works and his religious achievements had appeased God's wrath for him. But Jesus revealed to him that they had not. Jesus tells him plainly in verse 7, You, Nicodemus, must be born again. To make matters worse, Jesus not only told Nicodemus that he needed to be born of the Spirit of God, he needed to be born from above, but he also informed him that he could not save himself. Jesus likened the new birth to the wind in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit, Jesus tells Nicodemus. In other words, the wind is sovereign. Man cannot control it. The wind is mysterious. Man cannot anticipate or project its movement. And the same is true of the new birth. The same is true of the birth that comes from the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is sovereign in salvation. The Holy Spirit brings the new birth upon whom He wills. In other words, we might say Nicodemus could not have said to Jesus, Okay, Jesus, I understand. I need to be born again. Let me go away and do that, and then I'll come back to you. No, it doesn't work that way, Nicodemus. The Spirit of God cannot be manipulated. To put this in more of a contemporary language, in other words, you could say the sinner's prayer 1,000 times over again and still not be regenerated. You could invite Jesus into your heart until you're blue in the face. 
And this will in no way necessarily provoke the Holy Spirit to cause you to be born again. You could walk down the aisle at a Billy Graham crusade every night for a month and still not be converted by the Spirit of God. Hear me closely. By praying the sinner's prayer, asking Jesus into your heart, or walking an aisle, you cannot provoke or activate the Holy Spirit. You cannot cause Him to make you born again. However, for some, it may correspond in time with when the Holy Spirit causes them to be regenerated. It may correspond in time with when the Holy Spirit's working and causing them to be regenerated. Many people were saved under the preaching of evangelists like Billy Graham and D.L. Moody. Many people. But they were not saved because they walked an aisle. They were not saved because they raised their hand. They were saved by the Spirit of God through the preaching of the Gospel. When they understood the Gospel and believed it, they were saved. And that just may have corresponded with the time they rocked an aisle. But it may have not. The the new birth here, Jesus explained to Nicodemus, cannot be manipulated. It is a work of God. This is the difficulty of entering the kingdom that we studied last Sunday from John chapter 3, 1 through 8. This is, in other words, the divine side of salvation. And now that Jesus has sort of afflicted Nicodemus' pride, he can now explain to him the simplicity of entering the kingdom. That's what we'll focus on this morning, the simplicity of entering the kingdom. In verses 9 through 15, Jesus reorients Nicodemus to the heart of the gospel. Nicodemus' problem that he was, was that he was trusting in himself rather than trusting in the cross work of Jesus Christ. Follow along with me as I read the text again. John chapter 3, 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things, do these signs that you do, unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Considering the second half of this passage, Nicodemus is stunned. His response to Jesus' teaching about the new verse is captured in verse 9. Look at it with me. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? I mean, doubtless Nicodemus had spent years teaching others the conditions of entrance into the kingdom of God. 
And in the Pharisaical system, the conditions would have been cast in terms of obedience to God's law, devotion to God, maybe happy submission to the will of God. But now he's facing a condition that is not only different from what he's been accustomed to teach, but it's a condition that he's never even heard before. This absolute condition required being born from above, being born again. And Nicodemus' response discloses, discloses perplexity, but also unbelief. And Jesus will highlight Nicodemus' unbelief later. But at this point in John's account of this conversation, Nicodemus will not speak again. We don't know how he responds, really. This is the last words we have from him here. Jesus sort of takes over from this point forward. And what we have in this passage is really Jesus in four steps orienting Nicodemus to the truth. Four steps to orient Nicodemus to the truth. First, he's rebuked. The teacher is corrected by the great teacher. Then he's exposed in verse 11 through 12. His sin is diagnosed. Then he's instructed in verse 13 as Christ imparts to him Christological truth. And then finally, he's called in verses 14 and 15. He's called to salvation. So first, we see here in verse 10, Nicodemus rebuked. He's rebuked. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Are you, you, are, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Before Jesus can point Nicodemus to the truth, it seems that there is still an element of Nicodemus's, of Nicodemus's pride that needed to be dismantled. Jesus asked him, are, are you the teacher and yet you're untaught yourself? Do you claim to be a lamp for the blind and yet you yourself are in the dark? Are you a master of Israel and yet you're ignorant of some of the most basic elementary things of salvation? Putting Jesus' rebuke in maybe today's language, we might say, are you the reverend professor doctor and you do not understand these things? As I mentioned last week, the definite article in this verse is, is important. Are you the teacher, he says to Nicodemus. This small word, this article, indicates that either Nicodemus was the chief teacher in Israel, the chief teacher, or perhaps he was just a well-known teacher in Israel. Well, in either case, Nicodemus would have been a household name in Israel. He would have been a well-known man, and yet this man missed it. And being a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus should have known the book that God had given to Israel to guide them. He should have known the Old Testament, but there's something that Nicodemus had missed from the Old Testament. Likely too busy with the traditions of men, he had overlooked the Word of God. And just as an aside, may the, may the same not be true of us. May we be a people of the book who love the Word of God, who read and study and delight in the Word of God. May we live upon every word that comes forth from the mouth of the Lord and that has been recorded in Holy Scripture. May we not be like Nicodemus and miss it. But next in the account, Jesus, the great physician here, diagnoses the source of Nicodemus' confusion. This is the second point. He's exposed in verses 11 through 12. Look at verse 11 with me. Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. You see here, Nicodemus' problem could be summed up as a failure to believe. A failure to believe. In verse 11 Jesus speaks in the first person plural. It's an interesting note. We speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen. It seems here that Jesus is ultimately only referring to himself here. 
In verse 12, he'll return to speaking in the first person singular. And it could be that Jesus is maybe mimicking the opening words of Nicodemus there in verse 2. Nicodemus, if you recall, began by saying, Rabbi, we we know that you have come from God as a teacher. He had recognized Jesus taught with divine authority. He recognized that Jesus was from God, and yet Nicodemus and the rest of the Pharisees rejected Jesus' teaching. They knew he was from God, but they wouldn't believe him. That is an interesting fact. They did not accept Jesus' testimony. They would not welcome it. In verse 12, Jesus continues, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus had just explained the new birth in earthly terms to Nicodemus. He had, he had compared regeneration to being born a second time. He had compared regeneration to being like the wind. Jesus employed human analogies to help Nicodemus believe, and yet Nicodemus would not believe. Therefore, Nicodemus certainly would not believe greater heavenly things. Heavenly things appear here to be matters of deeper theological truth. By the way, in our English Bibles, the word you is used four times in verse 12. And each one of these uses are a plural you. They're a you plural in the original. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, but he's also speaking beyond Nicodemus, seemingly to all the Jews who reject Christ, to the Pharisees, no doubt. And Jesus here sets forth the Pharisees' problem. It was not that they misunderstood or that they somehow could not understand what Jesus was saying. The problem was not an intellectual problem. It was a volitional problem. They refused to believe. They just would not believe. They would not accept it. May that also not be true of us. May we believe with simple faith. Trust what Jesus said. And in these two verses, belief or faith is is equated just simply receiving Jesus' testimony. Receiving, welcoming Jesus' testimony. Faith here is not built upon reason nor is it derived from great knowledge. Faith is just simply the reception of divine truth. As Hebrews 11.3 states, By faith we understand. By faith we understand. By faith we grow in knowledge. Nicodemus refused to believe and therefore he could not understand. He didn't believe and therefore he could not understand. Nicodemus refused to accept Christ for who he claimed to be. Yes, Nicodemus came to Jesus with a level of respect, but he had not even begun to appreciate who Jesus truly was. Therefore, Jesus needed to correct Nicodemus' perception of himself. And this is our third point. He's instructed in verse 13. Instructed in verse 13. Christ needed to impart to Nicodemus a new theology of who Jesus was. Look at verse 13. He says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In the original, this verse begins with an and, and this conjunction connects the verse with the previous one. Jesus can speak authoritatively of heavenly things because he himself has descended from heaven. And there's no one else who has this authority to sort of go up into heaven, gain truth, and come back down. No one has done that. However, the Son of Man, which was Christ's favorite designation for himself, descended from heaven. The Son of Man came down from heaven. Eleven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. This title comes from a well-known messianic prophecy in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7. But I think the New Living Translation accurately, accurately captures the idea of verse 13. It says, 
No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. That's the idea. The Son of Man, He is the one who's come down from heaven. He can reveal it. As one Bible scholar explained the meaning of this verse, he said this, Jesus can speak of heavenly things not because He ascended to heaven from a home on earth and then, and then descended to tell others of His experiences, but because heaven was His home in the first place. And therefore, He has inherently the fullness of heavenly knowledge. End quote. Jesus had heavenly knowledge because His home was heaven and He came down from heaven. Jesus instructs Nicodemus regarding His heavenly origin. We'll call the opening verse of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14 clarifies, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The Word became flesh. God the Son took on flesh. He became a man. He descended from heaven in obedience to His Father. And therefore He had heavenly authority and His teaching was from heaven. So thus far Jesus had sort of bewildered Nicodemus by telling him to be born again. And then He rebuked him for being a teacher who failed to know. And then He exposed His problem, His unbelief. And then He instructs Nicodemus on Christ's heavenly origin. And finally, He points him to eternal salvation. In other words, He's called in verses 14 and 15, Nicodemus is called, called to Christ, called to salvation. And what Jesus does in, in this next couple verses is simply breathtaking, if rightly understood. Jesus points Nicodemus to the Old Testament. Jesus concludes his, his words to Nicodemus by saying, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. You see here, Jesus directed Nicodemus' attention and our attention to Numbers 21. Let's please turn there with me to Numbers chapter 21 in our Old Testaments, Numbers 21. Here we have an account from the Torah, from the first five books of the Bible, one that Nicodemus no doubt would have been very familiar with. God had led His people in the promised land but the Israelites refused to trust in the Lord by taking possession of the land. And therefore, they were banished for 40 years to wander in the wilderness, killing off an entire generation. And as we come to Numbers 21, the people do as they were prone to do. And sadly, as we're often prone to do, they begin to complain. And let's pick up this historical account in verse 4 of, chapters, or of Numbers 21, verse 4. And when they sent out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey, the people spoke against God and Moses, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. We recall, we read Numbers 11. They had food. God provided it for them, but yet they loathed it, they said. Day after day, God provided miraculously for this people bread from heaven. He gave them quail for them to eat. He also miraculously provided water for them. But despite God's provision, the people began to grumble. They rebel against God and against God's chosen leader, Moses. And as a result, God judged the people. Look at verse 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. 
Interesting thing that God does here. If we'd like to know how God feels about complaining, consider this passage. In response to their grumbling, God sends fiery snakes into the camp to bite them. And a number of people die. Look at Numbers 21.7. So, so the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpent from us. And Moses interceded for the people. The people, the people called Moses to, inter, to intervene by praying for them. Moses then prays. And Yahweh responds by giving Moses a solution. Look at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it out on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. Moses responds obediently here. Look at verse 9. And Moses said, And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a standard, that's a pole, raised it up on a pole, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to that bronze serpent, he lived. And verse 9 is the end of this account. There's no summary statement providing additional explanation here. By His grace, God provided a solution to the problem that the Israelites' sin had created. Knowing God, knowing that He's omniscient, we could say God could have done any number of things to save His people. He could have used any number of means. He could have simply just sent the snakes away. And so God's solution here is unorthodox, to say the least. God instructs Moses, craft a bronze snake, fasten it to a pole, raise it up into the sky, and then when someone is bitten, have them look at the snake on top of the pole, and if they look, they'll be healed. And Moses carries out the orders, and the solution worked. Those who were bit by the snakes recovered if they looked at the pole. All they had to do was look at the snake, and they were healed. With a number of Israelites... Numbers 11 saying 600,000. That's likely just the men. So this is likely over 2 million people in the wilderness. It's probable, it's probable that some had to walk a distance to be able to see that serpent upon the pole. But if they did, if they made their way to the pole and saw that snake, they were healed. And in the rest of the Old Testament, there's no further explanation of this account. Eventually, this bronze serpent that Moses created is destroyed by King Hezekiah because too many people treated it as, it, ha- if it as if it had some inherent magical powers. The king thought it was best to destroy it in 2 Kings 18.4. But that's it. No further explanation. And we're left thinking that this is a strikingly odd way to deal with a snake problem. Bronze serpent, put it on a pole in the wilderness. It's just all odd. That's until the New Testament and until John chapter 3, when Jesus says, make your way back there, Until John chapter 3, when Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. As Moses erected that snake upon a pole, Jesus explains to Nicodemus, The Son of Man must be lifted up. This phrase, lifted up, can mean to be exalted or honored, but it can also mean to have like a sort of a spatial meaning, to be lifted into the air, to be raised up. And Jesus, in a way, sort of combines both of those meanings. In the, in the Gospel of John, Jesus regularly uses this term to refer to his crucifixion. Lifted up refers to crucifixion. For example, in John 8:28, Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Similarly, in John 12, 
verses 32 through 34, Jesus says, and I, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. The text says, and he was saying this to indicate the kind of death which he was to die. There it is very clear. That phrase indicates the kind of je- death Jesus was to die, which was, we know was a crucifixion. The crowd there then answered, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? You see, the Jews expected the Messiah to be a king who will rule forever. And that he is, but not in his first coming. In his first coming, he was the suffering servant who needed to die for the sins of his people. He will one day rule forever and ever, but not in his first coming. Regardless here, understand that Jesus is referring to his death by using the phrase lifted up. Jesus says, as Moses was As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And note that word must. The Son of Man must be lifted up. God the Son, by necessity, needed to be lifted up. He needed to be crucified. He needed to die and suffer. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24, 26, after his resurrection, Jesus said this. He said, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter his glory. It was necessary. It was necessary because it was the will of God. From the foundation of the world, God decreed that Christ would suffer for the sins of his people. There would be a seed who would die. And it's also that there was no other possible means of salvation. There's no other way. There's no other way men could be saved. He needed to die. He had to die. Even so, must the Son of Man must be lifted up. It was necessary that there be a perfect sinless sacrifice. And Jesus is looking forward to his death in verse 14. He's looking forward to his death. He's prophesying of when he would be hung on a tree, nailed to a Roman cross. And he says, like Moses was lifted up, like Moses lifted up that bronze servant, even I must be lifted up, not on a pole, but on a cross. And what's the purpose behind this? Why is Jesus doing this? To what end was Jesus lifted up on the cross? Well, Jesus explains in verse 15. He says, so that, purpose, so that whoever believes in Him will have, whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. That is the purpose. So that the one who believes, the one who places their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will have eternal life, everlasting, never ceasing eternal life with God. Here, having eternal life is synonymous in this passage with entering the kingdom of God. Earlier, he referred to it as entering the kingdom of God. Here, it's possessing, obtaining eternal life. It is the believing one who has eternal life. It is he who believes. And this eternal, endless life is in him. The one who believes will in him, that is in Christ, have eternal life. This is referring to our union with Christ. When we believe in Christ, we're connected with Him. We become one with Him. We're hidden in Him. We're united with Him. He saves us and our faith connects us to Him, places us in Him. Now let's just take a step back and consider what Jesus is saying in verses 14 and 15 here. Jesus likens salvation or or obtaining eternal life to an ancient account in the Old Testament. In Numbers 21, the people had a problem. Because of their sin, they offended a holy God, and now God was bringing His wrath against them in the form of fiery, poisonous snakes. And the Lord judged them, and many people died. 
Then they cried out for God for relief from the wrath of God. And God made a way. He said, look at this bronze serpent atop of the pole. And now Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, consider that account. Salvation, including the new birth, is similar to that. As the people of Israel had to look to that snake, so you must look to the crucified Son of God. Look at Him crucified for your sins. Look at Him, Nicodemus. Here, Jesus is really distilling faith and repentance down to its most essential, purest form. Here is faith distilled. Having saving faith in Christ is looking to Christ. Looking to Christ with desperation. The sinner who recognizes his faithful condition, who recognizes that because of his rebellion against the holy God, he hangs on a spider web thread over eternity, possibly entering eternity at any moment. I think of my friend who just passed away in Bozeman. He had one month he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's and then passed away. That could be any of us. We never know when we'll go. And so the sinner who recognizes how, how quick this life can be, the sinner who sees his rebellion against God and sees that he's in great need of salvation, the sinner who recognizes that he has indeed been bit, he has been bit by sin, and he's accrued the wrath of God against him. And if the sinner sees that and recognizes that, in order to be saved, he must look to Christ. Just look to the crucified Son of Man. And if he does look, he can be saved. All the sinner must do is look. Look, there's no work involved with looking. It's simple. Just look. Jesus compares saving faith to just the effortless act of man. Look, just, just look. Just simply shift your eyes to the cross, Nicodemus. Just look at the Son of Man. It couldn't get any simpler than that. Nicodemus, you, you cannot save yourself. You must be born by the Spirit of God. You have no power, no ability to cause yourself to be born again. The Spirit of God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. He's mysterious. You cannot manipulate Him or conjole Him by human works. But if you see your great need, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Look to the Son of Man lifted up on the tree. Look to Him. This is the simplicity of salvation. The simplicity of the new birth. The new birth comes upon those who cry out in desperation for salvation. And God grants them eyes of faith and they believe. They repent. They turn to Him. The spiritually dead are given new life and they believe. And they believe with all their might. Therefore, as evangelists, we are always telling people, indeed even pleading with sinners, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to the Son of Man crucified. Just look at Him. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. And then we command them. We just command them. Repent. You have to repent. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ. Turn from your sins. For we know that through the preaching of the gospel, God occasionally brings spiritual life. He causes them to be born again. And so we implore them to repent and believe. And some will believe. They will come to faith. It's, it's that simple, Nicodemus. It's that simple. Just, just look at Christ. God is sovereign in salvation. He brings the new birth upon whom he wills. He does it in his timing. And in John 3, nothing else is said to Nicodemus. This is it. We don't have any other word from Nicodemus here in John chapter 3. And I imagine him here going home, returning maybe to his fellow siren, fellow Pharisees. I doubt that he shared with him his encounter. 
He was probably quite confused, I would imagine. But God was not done with this man, Nicodemus. God was not done with him. And the Apostle John wanted us to see this. I think Nicodemus needed time to think and process Jesus' words. In John 6.44, Jesus states, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Look at that. No one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. The Father was drawing this self-righteous religious teacher, Nicodemus. The Father was drawing Nicodemus to himself, sort of in stages. Nicodemus makes two other notable appearances in the Gospel of John. Turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Here we find Nicodemus somewhat defending Jesus when other Pharisees are speaking against him and seeking to arrest him. Look at John chapter 7, verse 50. Nicodemus here, he who came, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, doesn't it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. You see, Nicodemus here intercedes on Christ's behalf, and it costs him. He sort of gets a subtle rebuke. That's what this, verse 52. They say, are you, you're not also from Galilee, are you? You want to be one of his disciples too, Nicodemus? So Nicodemus gets here. It costs him a little bit. He makes a stand for Christ, and it costs him. But that's the end of that discussion. When the other Pharisees speak against Jesus and seek to arrest him, Nicodemus argues that Jesus should just receive a fair trial according to their Jewish law. Maybe we're ultimately unsure of Nicodemus's motive, but we can be hopeful of what's going on in his heart. The Apostle Paul brings up Nicodemus for a final time after the death of Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 19. See this final reference to Nicodemus. John chapter 19, verse 38. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate, granted him permission. And so he came away and took away his body. Verse 39, here's Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid, Therefore, because of the Jewish day of purification, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. They laid Jesus there. Here, Nicodemus provided about 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes, spices to anoint Jesus' body. This is an extravagant quantity of spices, and it shows that Nicodemus was quite wealthy as a Pharisee. He was quite wealthy, but it also shows of his great appreciation for Jesus at this point. We might say his love for Jesus at this point, for a Jew to touch a dead person would make them ceremonially unclean. But for a Pharisee to care for Jesus' dead body, I mean, recognize Jesus was just executed because he was the arch-heretic of the day. And here you have the teacher of Israel touching the body of Jesus, anointing the body of Jesus. I think this tells us a lot. I mean, this would have been social suicide for Nicodemus. And at this point, I think we see Nicodemus' faith in full bloom. He has counted the cost. He's giving up everything to follow Christ. He now has a love for Christ so much so that he wants to care for his dead body. Initially, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. He came in the shadows to him. And now here is Nicodemus walking in the light, suffering 
consequence. Jesus had told him he needed to be born again, and I believe that the Spirit of God had done that very thing in Nicodemus at this point. And that just only leads us back to ourselves and asking, what about us? What about you? Have you been born of the Spirit of God? And this morning, if you're terrified understanding that Jesus, Jesus' words to Nicodemus, if you understand that you cannot save yourself, that you cannot manipulate the Holy Spirit, if you understand that you're really powerless or impotent to affect your own salvation, then let me tell you what you need to do. You simply need to look to Christ. Look to the Son of Man lifted up. Just trust in Him. You need to look to the Son of Man crucified. Look to Christ. Place your faith in Him. Turn to Him and trust to Him. As Isaiah 45:22, Yahweh says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Turn to me and be saved, or as how the King James Version puts it, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Simple faith and trust in God and in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. Nicodemus' problem was that he was looking at himself and he needed to look to Christ. May the same be true of us. Jesus, as the master evangelist, deals with this man. Let us learn from him, but let us also see the simplicity of entering the kingdom, the simplicity of trusting in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.